Well, good afternoon. I show 140. Why don't we get this party started? Okay, everybody's on board with that? Okay. Close enough, exactly. I'm Lynn McPherson. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and I practice in primary care and in hospice and palliative care. And my collaborator is? Sandra Atkinson, and I'm a pharmacist. I practice in ambulatory outpatient pain clinic, and um, that's in Bay Pines, Florida. Okay. So we're curious, how many of you practice in an interprofessional environment? Okay, so I would say 90% of the room, wouldn't you say? Yes. So when you got your professional degree, pharmacy, nursing, medicine, social work, whatever it is you did, how many of you were taught in your didactic coursework in an interprofessional, integrated fashion? I see about eight hands. Yeah, so, none of those are gray hairs either. I know, and they're all 12 years old, right? So for the rest of us old fogies in the room, I mean, what makes us think that we can train people in silos and then kick them into clinic together and say, do this? It's kind of a problem, don't you think? Yeah, and depending on the behavior you're born with, it can yeah. really be a dead it can end. It be a problem, right. So uh, this is called Meducating Pain Professionals, Interprofessional Education in Pain Education. And I, I can speak best about pharmacy, but our accrediting organization now requires that we demonstrate we have interprofessional teaching throughout our curriculum, both didactic and experiential. And I, I'm pretty sure that nursing and pharmacy and medicine on our campus have the same. Uh, as a matter of fact, the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore, which is our uh, medical campus and law, uh, has embraced this as one of his charges that he desperately wants us all to do. And we're going to talk about some of those barriers because it's easier said than done. So here are our, object our objectives to t become familiar with the importance of learning, education, and practice. Well, I think we're preaching to the choir here. Recognize collaboration as an interprofessional process of communication and decision making and list the benefits of IPE. So I, I assume you're all on board with IPE since you're here, yes? Awesome. So what's the difference between all these words? Holy moly. Are there differences? Is it one, all these different words for the same sort of thing? I mean, I think they are different, and we're going to explore them, but multidisciplinary, collaborative practice, interprofessional practice and learning, multiprofessional, interprofessional education, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary. And, uh, you know, I think collaboration is the name of the game, because if we, ha we, ha we are a team. Of course, I'm obscenely biased. I personally think hospice and palliative care is the ultimate team. I mean, we, we've got this team thing down straight. I mean, I always say my goal as the pharmacist on the hospice team is to make sure that, you know, everybody here is 10% pharmacist. And I swear to you, I am 10% social worker, and I have a 10% chaplain, and 10% nurse. And, I mean, I know enough of the other disciplines to, well, mostly to get myself in trouble. But, you know, I do a lot of, spend a lot of time teaching the home health aides about medications in hospice and end-of-life care so that when the patient is being rolled around in bed and they're having horrible pain because the aide is doing personal care and they say, don't tell the nurse, but I don't take that pain pill because it makes me so constipated. And the home health aide knows enough about the pain pill and that it causes constipation and that we have medications to treat that and how to have the communication with the patient to say, you know, this is really important. So how can the aide not break the trust of the patient but then report this information to the nurse case manager? So we spend a lot of time working on that. It's so important. So collaboration, an interprofessional process of communication and shared decision making that enables the separate and shared knowledge of skills of healthcare providers to synergistically influence the ways patient care and broader community health services are provided. Uh, everybody on board with this idea? I mean, how could you not be, right? I mean, duh, right? 
All right, so this was an interesting slide for me when we put this together, is I just didn't really think of how this gets differentiated out. IPL, is interprofessional learning, is composed of interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. So IPL is this overarching term, lifelong learning. So obviously, we are preaching to the choir because you're here taking a week off from work for lifelong learning, right? So do you all espouse the idea of lifelong learning? I mean, do you, does anybody here have a personal mission statement? I have a personal mission. Do, everybody should have a personal mission statement. And learning every day is part of my personal mission statement. Just ask my mother, who thinks I'm insane because I'm finishing a second master's degree this semester and I've got my eye on another PhD. So she wants to kill me. She reminds me that I'm old and I'm going to die soon. I was like, really? How can you do that to me? So I really like lifelong learning. Principles of adult learning. What are some principles of adult learning? How are you different from a group of seventh graders? What do you think? Right there. Some things never change. I'm still the teacher, and yes, I'm calling on you. So there. <laughs> At least you know I don't have to come up to the board. <laughs> How are you different as an adult learner than somebody in middle school? So what about that experience? You all come to this arena with experience. Why is that important for Sandra and I to recognize? You know, adults are, you know, when you look at theory of learning, there's behaviorists. Behaviorists is when you were in third grade and the teacher said, you've just got to hunker down and memorize the multiplication table and a discussion. I mean, you can sing songs, you can tap dance, you can do whatever you want, but you have to know that two times three is six all day long. Just suck it up and memorize it. The behaviorist theory is your brain is a black box. Stuff comes in, stuff comes out, and they give you no credit for what goes on inside, inside the box. Then we have another theory, but the real theory of adult learning is constructivism because adults construct their own meaning. So you have to recognize the experiences that adults bring to the table and then allow them enough opportunity through active learning and dialogue and reflection to build new content and new information. So important. I don't know about you, but I hate it when people should on me. Do you know what I mean? You should go on a diet. Really, that's fresh information. Thank you for sharing that. I've never heard that before. This, this is new information, isn't it? Where have I been all this time? You should get eight hours of sleep. Stop shooting on me. So I don't shoot on anybody. I think that's so important. I think one of the biggest differences between adults, you know, I, I really embrace the principle of andragogy, which is teaching adults, versus children, which is pedagogy, is, you know, you, your mother didn't make you come here today. You came here by choice. So those are some of the principles of adult learning. I love active learning. What is active learning? What does this mean? What does this mean? Think about when you went to nursing, pharmacy, medicine, social work, wherever you went, how were most of, what was most of your content delivered in the didactic portion? A stand-up lecture for 50 minutes, right? You could be in a coma, couldn't you? At our school now, you know, you can take an act. Just don't wake up and ask me a hard question. At our school, we even have a distant campus, and they don't get the live lecture. They have to watch it on Mediasite, which is a recorded lecture. What's active learning? So the clickers, the garage door openers, that's an example of active learning. What is, what do we, how do we define active learning? What does that mean? I'm doing active learning right now. Green shirt, front row, talk to me. What's active learning? Dude, you're wearing a green shirt with stripes. It's a neon green. You, I can see you in Ohio from here. <laughs> well, 
and you know, it's engaging learners. It's, it's, so whether it's, which is the right multiple choice answer. Uh, my, my fellow last year who just finished and just went off to a different university, we took all of my pain teaching, which is 20 hours, and she did a two-year fellowship with me. She did uh, the residency, half-time every two years in palliative care, and then a fellowship in instructional design with me. The first year she was with me, I taught the 20 hours the usual way. And I'm a pretty interactive teacher already. I mean, I, I don't like the yappity-yap sort of thing. But the second year, we completely flipped it. So I had some brief, pre-recorded lectures posted on Blackboard. But most of it in class was interacting. It was doing cases, things like that. So a lot of research has looked at how well do the students do on the test after you flip the classroom. Well, we did that, of course, too. And everybody's letter grade, on average, went up a whole point. It went up like 10 percentage points, so a whole letter grade. But more importantly, we did an OSCE which is a simulated encounter with a pain patient who had low back pain, ran out of his or her Percocet and went to the ER, and they said, you must be a drug seeker. In fact, the patient was in horrible pain. So their OSCE score went up 15 percentage points. So that kind of active learning makes a huge difference. Um, different cultures, different healthcare disciplines, so important. IPE, again, it's just the education. This is important, where two or more professions learn with, from, and about each other. Think about it when you went to school. I mean, the first thing I have students do on my hospice rotation is I have a file where I make them read what does the hospice social worker do. It's not just meals on wheels. For God's sake, if you say that to a social worker, they will poke you in your good eye. OT is more than just a little grabber thing if you have rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, what do all these different disciplines bring to the table? I think that's important, don't you? Yeah, and it touches on respect. Uh, absolutely. And then the last one, which I can't even see, IPP, uh, occurs when all members of the healthcare delivery team participate in the team's activity and rely on one another to achieve the final goal. So let's look at this. Is IPE students from different health professions in the same class without reflective interaction? Is this interprofessional education? Here we got a good-looking pharmacy student and a nursing student and a social work student all sitting side by side. What do you think? That looks like Orgo 1. I don't know who's going to flunk out first. The nursing student looks like he's about to slide into coma. <laughs> and the medical student looks like they're making this crap up as they go along. So what do you think? How could we do this better here? Groups. Can you do a group in a, I mean, some people swear that, you know, freshman 101, whatever, biology 101, where you have a thousand kids in a class, that is long distance learning, right? I can't say you in the back corner. So how can I pull off interactive small groups, like say in this room, we have what, 300 people here, 200? How could I do that? I could say, you don't even have to get up. We're going to do a think, pair, share. Turn to the person next to you, and here's what you're going to do for the next minute. And then we're going to debrief. I'm going to call an orange, or I'm going to call on purple flower up here. So you can do these think, pair, shares. So this is deadly right here. How about an interprofessional, edu is interprofessional education a faculty member from a different profession leading the class? So I'm super excited because at the University of Maryland, Baltimore, we have seven schools. We have pharmacy, nursing, medicine, social work, law, dentistry, and the graduate school. And it took me till last year, and I've been there 25 years, 26 years now, and I've taught at every single school, so it's super exciting. So I love doing the lecture in the dental school because they take this really intense course, every medical student on pain, but it's all like molecular biology and neurotransmitters. And I have the last lecture, and it's like, all right, let me tell you how to write a prescription. Here's what you're going to do when you pull a tooth, okay? And here's what you do with this stuff when it's in electric pain in your face. And they love it because if somebody tells them what to do. Is that IPE? I am a pharmacist standing in the dental school. What do you think? Yeah, you, or were you just stretching there or were you waving at me? Okay. I, I should let you off the hook. Okay, got it. Is that IPE? 
Uh, no, it's really not. I'm yapping at them, really. It's really not in the true definition. I mean, you know, yeah, hopefully they're learning from me, uh, but I'm not really getting anything from them. How about this? Let's talk about clinical practice. Is IPE participating in a patient care setting led by an individual from another profession without shared decision-making? And We've all been in team meetings where we've had one overbearing person on the team, haven't we? Is that sharing? No, everybody else is scared to death to speak up. Am I right? Hospice. We rule in hospice. It's awesome because everybody's important in hospice. You know, I actually did a research project looking at everybody's perception on the hospice team and their perception of the role of everybody else and who brought the most to the table for the team and for the patient and family. And do you know who was the most valued? Who wants to guess? It was the home health aide. It's the shiny, hiney lady. It's the person that gives the patient back their respect. That was the most popular, the most valued person of the team, not the person with 14 degrees. All right, so what is the difference between multi-professional, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary? What are we right now in this room? Who, let's vote. Who thinks we are multidisciplinary? Who thinks we are interdisciplinary? Anybody think we're trans? Well, you're all right. What differentiates multi from inter and trans? Who would like to take a crack at that? Okay, so that would be interdisciplinary? How is transdisciplinary different? What's your discipline? What are you? Psychologist. So um, do you know anything about medications? Okay, so you and I could work together in a transdisciplinary fashion, couldn't we? Because you're 10% pharmacist. And I've been around the block long enough to do, I, I would say I'm 10% psychologist too. And plus I'm a little crazy, so that probably helps too. <laughs> so, you know, we, it's important, like one of my favorite palliative care teams in Baltimore, the social worker is quick to say, when I go in the room to talk to a patient about advanced care planning and they look uncomfortable, I say, you look like you're in pain. Are, are you uncomfortable right now? And the patient says, yes. She says, you know what, let me go get your nurse and see if we can get you some medication. I'll come back in an hour. And I know enough to say to a patient, you know, what do you hope for? What do you fear? What's one thing I can do for you right now? Because the social workers taught me how to do that. Have you learned from your team too? Yes. Yeah, so I love transdisciplinary work. So I love this cartoon. It says, how can they work together if they don't learn together? And this is so true. You can't, I mean, the first day on rotation as a student, didn't you think you were going to have a stroke when you were thrown in the deep end on the team? Oh, my gosh, it's horrible. So this is our, what we've been traditionally doing. If you start at the bottom left, if you look at individual patients who have local health care needs, really, I think we're providing fragmented care. Uh, my PCP is a nurse practitioner. She is awesome. I love her to pieces. But I'd say 50% of the time when I have a complaint about something, it's, oh, I know a good person for that. Let me refer you there. Let me refer you here. Can we do anything here aside to say hello? I mean, everything is a turf. So, but if we start to embrace interprofessional education and collaborating, then we can take these learners who we have taught collaboratively together and they can go out and do collaborative practice which hopefully will give us a strengthened integrated healthcare system and research has shown better healthcare outcomes. So important. Okay, so that was really fun Marilyn, but Always. we got to back this pony up a little bit okay. and get into some of the unfun stuff. That, the theory. How did we get here? Yeah, yes. the theory of it. So you think about the who, it's not the band. 
But I will say one of the major stakeholders was the World Health Organization, the American Public Health Association, and several other big players. But the real who are the students. They're involved in the IPE, in the culture and the translation as it comes through the universities. Defined as members or students of two or more professions associated with health or social care, engaged in learning with and from and about each other. That's where that communication and respect can come in. Uh, once these students understand how to work interprofessionally, they're ready to enter the workplace as a more productive member of the collaborative practice team. And students then focus on these collaborative approaches to be more patient-centered. Uh, a lot of you have heard of the medical home model into ambulatory care. And this emphasis on team interaction embodies more respect for one another's skill sets and what they bring to the table, improved communication, service, learning, evidence-based practice, and quality improvement, which is why these major national stakeholders are really um, supporting this movement, and it goes way back to the early 2000s. Interprofessional healthcare teams understand how to optimize their skills and their skills of their members. They have shared case management and provide better health services to patients and the community. And that results in a strengthened healthcare system, which, if you heard Steve Pasek last night, it's broken, it needs fixed. And it leads to improved health outcomes. That can really impact our world. So the origin of this collaborative movement uh, goes back to 2009 when a coalition of 15 leading health professions and associations partnering organizations committed to fostering this team-based education practice, get into the universities and the colleges and make these changes. They all shared the common belief that interprofessional education and collaborative practice are really essential to providing this safer, high-quality, accessible, and patient-centered care with improved population health care outcomes. So this is a little complex slide. I'm sorry it's kind of hard to read, but squeezing in all the disciplines is more than an arduous task. Did they miss any? Anybody's discipline Anybody's not on the list? out there that's disciplines not listed in these 13? Yes. Psychology? Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't see I it don't either. see it. I apologize. Another one? Respiratory is not on there either. Respiratory is right. huge, yes. This should be beaten. Well, and we stole this from the Western University's model as they were implementing it in their um, college uh, uh, system. So as you move through this educational model from left to right, whatever disciplines exist on your campus, and Mary Ellen, you went through the ones on your campus, and I'm thinking back to, and you can think back to the college where you got your first degree or your primary degree. What other professions were there? I, I think back, I mean, gee, at Ohio Northern University, when I went through pharmacy school, uh, we had gearheads across the road from us. That was pretty much it. So it was pharmacy and engineering. Everything else was more liberal arts. It's changed a lot now. I don't know if you can you know, think about the university that you came from and how these core disciplines need to then change, and that's what we're going to discuss, is how the didactic moves into some of the newer simulabs that are on campuses, translates into your clinical care rotations, and becomes true patient-centered collaborative care that can impact our communities. Maybe you've participated already in some of these as projects where you went with uh, 
maybe a respiratory therapist and a nurse and a pharmacist and a doctor, and you had a, a clinic weekend where you went to some indigent areas in the community or you did an immunization uh, weekend for an underserved area. That's IPE on wheels. I think one of the finest um, professional development things I've done uh, as an adult learner is probably three years ago I went to Toronto. The University of Toronto, the main college, has pain week. And I was like, ooh, pain week. Wait a minute. Wow. I've heard that before. <laughs> but not this pain week. They have a week where every single student on campus goes through learning about pain. The English majors and the engineers and the pre-pharmacy students, everybody. And the whole curriculum is, it's not really the content so much, it's the skills of communicating with other disciplines. And it's hugely successful. So if you ever really want to delve more deeply into IPE, I think they do this every other year. It's awesome. It's really expensive, but it was really awesome. Okay, so let's look at some of the IP interprofessional education collaboratives core competencies. Now, it really gets dry here because this document is over 48 pages. And we're just going to pull out a few things because we actually thought everybody would be at Howard Height in Dr. Gourlay's message on the fourth floor. But we're glad you're here and you're not asleep after that really good lunch. So some of the core competencies, they started out with the document in 2011, and then they just recently updated it. Um, it's framed in national dialogue on the need for interprofessional education as a catalyst such that the students at these universities and colleges would embrace the team-based patient care and enhance the population outcomes, reducing healthcare disparities. And so this core, supported also by the Institute of Medicine, or the IOM, isolates its core competencies to mirror that in that individual students will be working in interdisciplinary teams, establishing cooperation for the skill sets and respecting the different disciplines in collaboration, how to become leaders. So faculty actually get, have to get trained to be mentors and coaches to facilitate some of this. And another core competency in learning these communication skills is learning how to resolve conflict so that you don't have one person taking over the team, but that the team works together cohesively and that they would set common patient care goals and then integrate this care. Three other main goals remain from these core competencies for the IP collaborative was to reaffirm the value and impact of the core competencies, and then they have a whole host of sub-competencies. To organize these competencies in a singular domain of interprofessional collaboration, and these are what those should embody. Again, we've been talking a lot about values. Also ethics, again, this is healthcare. The roles and responsibilities interprofessional communication, and that's where the coaching and mentoring comes in, as well as teams establishing and then teams, teamwork. The third goal was to broaden the competencies to better achieve the aim of IPEC, and that's to improve the patient experience of care, improve the health of populations, especially those underserved, to reduce the per capita cost of health care. Well, that would be a great outcome. And so identified in this is the goal for the university to take a hold of their curriculum and to depart a strategic plan from the top down. That's administration in their pocketbook. And each college or institution, be it nursing, pharmacy, medicine, physical therapy, rate, uh, veterinary, uh, podiatry, uh, respiratory therapy, uh, mental health, psychology, psychiatry, all of the disciplines at whatever institutions have these, and some are distance, you know, like across town, they might have their simulabs, 
And then in a rural area, maybe the uh, medicine library and two of the other uh, professions. So it, it becomes difficult to frame this, if you will, for implementation. But that 48-page that, uh, document was then, over a period of time, there were meetings where these uh, presidents and deans attend, and then it was trickled down to how is each individual university going to make this happen. And so that's where this brief uh, arrow of expose and introduce, immerse them into development, and then get some competence to uh, establish that. For the students, however, C3 becomes really important. How does the student then create this collaborative care environment or culture? And one of the um, collaborative re reports was that the student can, as a graduate coming through this type of process, they're more effective in the team member uh, in the collaborative healthcare delivery and or the research that they're going in at that time as a postgraduate uh, fellow uh, practitioner uh, waiting to take their license or, or the first job that they find themselves in and the disciplines that they have to work within, outpatient clinic, inpatient, or institution. So the faculty also have to be trained, and that's where um, I found some of the evidence about some of the schools actually teaching their, um, their professors on how to be a better mentor and a coach. Okay, so as I shared with you, I work in hospice and palliative care, and I work for several, I consult with several hospices as part of my clinical practice through the university, and one hospice is a nationwide when they're in 19 different states. So I'm on call, and they, they call me, they email me like literally 24-7. So I got a call, of course, from one in the Baltimore office this morning here in Las Vegas at 5 in the morning, and it started off with the nurse talking faster than me, can you imagine it, really, she was just so upset, she was like, oh my God, oh my God, you have to help me, this woman's 51 years old, she has bipolar She's, she's just crazy. She's making them all crazy in there. She's running up and down the hall. She's having horrible pain, screaming pain. What should I do? I'm thinking, okay, okay, well, I'm in Las Vegas. Who am I? <laughs> Who are you? What's with the patient? So, you know, I, I, it must be me. I go a little crazy. I, I get calls all day long. So here's a common call. Hi, Lynn. This is Betsy, the nurse from the North team. I'm calling about Ms. Johnson. You know, we talked about her two weeks ago. Her pain is still something awful. What should we do? What's wrong with this? How, and what do I say? Sometimes I'll say, where's the pain? And I'll get, oh, I don't know. Let me, let me put the phone down and go ask. Yeah. Seriously? You don't even know where the boo-boo is and you're calling me to help you fix it? <laughs> a, I don't even, I'm not even quite sure who Betsy is, let alone, I'm not even sure what I had for breakfast today, let alone, who the heck is Ms. Johnson and what did we talk about two weeks ago? So you need some basic information. And I have to tell you, I'm not trying to offend nurses, but nurses get so upset when doctors don't, respond in the way they would like on the phone. And I've tried to explain to them, physicians are trained to think in bullet points. So if you want to, you, you are the eyes and ears of the rest of the team out in the home when you're dealing with the home hospice patient. So you have to give very accurate, succinct report. So my favorite thing in the world to do is SBAR communication. Let's try this again. I'm calling about Mrs. Hello, this is Lynn, the hospice nurse. I'm calling about Mrs. Smith, a 92-year-old woman admitted to hospice a few weeks ago with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So when I go over this with the hospice nurses, I say, you know what? I must not be the sharpest tool in the shed because I don't care if this person is white, black, or green, or purple. I really don't care about that. But if I don't get an age and a primary admitting diagnosis, I cannot filter the information that's coming. So I say, when you're calling somebody else on the team, even though Dr. Jones is in charge of Mrs. Smith, Dr. Jones may or may 
may not remember, the patient's 92 and has Alzheimer's disease, because this doctor's probably following 482 patients. So SBAR is Situation, Background, Assessment, and Recommendation. So that's the sitch. Very, very quick. Background. Mrs. Smith is a FAST 7C, which is a degree of severity with Alzheimer's disease. She was receiving denepazil and memantine on admission to hospice. The daughter tells me she has to fight Mrs. Smith to get her to take her medications, and she's quite combative. She's also worried because Mrs. Smith has fallen several times and complains of dizziness. Her blood pressure is stable, but her heart rate has dropped into the 60s. A, assessment. Now, I've, I, when I teach this, I tell my students or the nurses I work with or whomever, you, it's perfectly okay to say, I got nothing. I have no earthly idea what's going on. Do you? Could you help me figure this out? But in this case, this hospice nurse happens to have an awesome clinical pharmacist who takes every opportunity to say, people who are fast 7C do not need denepazil and memetine. And she says, I do not feel that the denepazil and memetine are providing benefit at this point. It's hard to get her to take the medications, and I know these medications lower the heart rate. They're the, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, very vigotonic. R, recommendation. And again, I say, you may not have one. But you know, hospice nurses, Pardon it here again. I think hospice nurses are the smartest nurses in the universe. The, the skill they have, they have two awesome skills. Number one, they're more accurate than any GPS. Absolutely. If I want to go anywhere, I ask a hospice nurse. The second thing is they never take no for an answer. If they talk to a physician, the physician says, no, I'm not going to do that. The nurse says, thank you very much, hangs up, and goes to work on plan B and gets what the nurse needs to get the job done. You will never see a bigger patient advocate. And they usually know what to do next. So, And often the hospice nurse knows more than a prescriber in the community who does not do end-of-life care routinely. My recommendation is let's cut the dose in half, and if the situation does not worsen, I'd like to discontinue therapy. Does this sound like a plan to you? So do you think this was a better way to communicate this conversation? Any comments or thoughts on how you teach this to learners? How do you teach? I mean, do you think we all communicate well? No? I see a head shaking no over here. Why not, and how can we fix it? What are your thoughts? It's interesting. I mean, we can all tell stories. My sister is also a pharmacist. She's the manager of a grocery store pharmacy, and she is the best community pharmacist, best pharmacist I think I know. And, and I'm not saying that because she's my sister. I'm way better looking. Let's just be real clear about that. <laughs> Actually, she's eight years longer. She's much better looking than me. Um, but I do have cooler nails, but again. Um, so she, was, she said, we got this 92-year-old little lady, and she's getting some cough syrup with codeine for like 10 years. And so she finally said, you know, I think I'm going to call the prescriber because this just looks goofy. So she called the physician and just was inquiring, could you tell me, like, what's the indication here? Is this really necessary to a 92-year-old woman to keep getting this codeine product? And he blasted her. He blew her out of the water. I'm the physician. Don't you dare question me. And she was like, okay, fine. I'll just document we had this lovely conversation. He called back the next day. And she and I were talking about it. She said, what do you think happened? I said, I think he was complaining about you to somebody else. And they were like, you shouldn't be doing that. That's stupid to be doing that for 10 years, this little old lady. Called back the next day and apologized and said, I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. And you're right, we shouldn't be doing this. I've forgotten all the details. But she was, was, really felt vindicated and was pleased that happened. Well, you know, and I think there's no shame, like, if I'm talking to somebody who knows something, and usually it would be like a physician about a diagnostic issue. I'll say, could you explain to me the backstory on this diagnosis so that I can better understand how drug therapy drives this? I mean, we all have our strengths, don't we? So important. That's why communication is really important, and not knowing who your team is going to encompass 
and you have, like the gentleman in the back, described some transdisciplinary roles. For instance, in our clinic, if, if the physician is about to do an interventional procedure and the patient is coming up on the schedule in the next four or five days and the doctor omitted to realize that they have a contrast allergy, within a collaborative scope of practice, I'll go ahead and prescribe their preventative medications and not bother the doctor because as a team, we've prearranged our communication for how we'll handle certain situations. That way, the physician who's probably tied up in a procedure suite somewhere else is not going to have, you know, five pings and a, and a view alert and a link message and everything else, and the nurse climbing the wall because she wants to check off that she's done the pre-op pre uh, education for the second time or something like that. So you can see how in any different scenario, whether it was a community pharmacy mm -hmm. with a huge distance to get to the prescriber, uh, the hospice team mm -hmm. uh, could be inpatient or outpatient hospice, um, and then even ambulatory clinics that are interventional and, and um, you know, there's other scenarios, I'm sure, out here. And we have to have each other's back. So, for example, we teach our pharmacy students, when you're educating a patient about their medications, the first question you ask is, what did your prescriber tell you about this? So if the prescriber said, oh, my nurse practitioner said it's for X, Y, Z, then we can build on that. We can confirm that. We can reinforce that and elaborate on that. So I think we've talked about all sure. of these already. So now we're going to put you to work. So when we think about either didactic or experiential or whatever kind of practice, what do you think are some of the barriers to doing this? Are any of you faculty members that have tried to do this? No Other professors members? out here? And how, how's that working for you? I'll play Dr. Phil here. How's that working for you? Is it working well? Why? Why not? I would separate the physicians too, but not because of the age. Because <laughs> I would want a physician on each team. Do, do you know what I mean? Well, you know, as I said, I'm just finishing my second master's degree. Thank you, sweet baby Jesus. And I hate group work, although I'm designing a master's program and I'm going to rely heavily on group work. I actually wrote a blog called, Can I Just Be a Lone Wolf? So I think that is one of the big barriers, it is. though, is the rigid curriculum and introducing this earlier. Some of the schools that are more successful in this that I, I researched on, they even had Spanish interdisciplinary taught so that each of the disciplines would be able to, to speak more directly in the healthcare uh, arena or be a of it. So course design early on in the curriculum where, you know, let's say you're doing speech 101, have them mixed up and then you're interviewing perhaps a future, you know, social worker or a future whatever, instead of waiting till it's time to um, mix and mingle, if you will, with the project that's going to make or break everybody's grades. Yeah, back there. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we're glad you pulled through to live and tell about it. Well, we are at 2.30, and yeah. we really appreciate all of you participating. Thank you.